This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, it's Fitz, and if you don't know who I am, here's a quick bio. Veteran sports journalist who writes, does TV, radio, and is a longtime podcaster. Also, I have stage 4 prostate cancer, so my doctors advise me to stay home during these COVID-19 concerns. So what am I doing with my time? I'm calling some of the many friends, athletes, coaches, and colleagues who have been part of my life during more than 30 years in journalism. Oh, and I'm hitting the record button. Welcome to my life and the Life of Fitz podcast. From 1996 until 2002, Kansas State football averaged 10 victories a season. For a program that less than a decade prior was considered the worst in all of college football, the rise of the Wildcats under Bill Snyder was nothing short of miraculous. And during those seven seasons, it was Greg Sharp providing the play-by-play radio call throughout so many memorable games, plays, and moments during that breakthrough of Snyder's program and including being a contender to play for the national title in 1998. Sharp found himself caught in the middle of a dispute between K-State Athletics and WIBW Radio, his employer. So after that 2002 season, he turned his attention to working at WIBW without the play-by-play duties. During a five-year stretch, Sharp began to pick up some freelance duties, including a small package of television games for the University of Nebraska. Then in 2008, the job of providing play-by-play for the storied Nebraska football program opened up, and Sharp slid right into the seat. It didn't take Husker fans long to realize they had a special talent calling their football games in the always polished Greg Sharp. Greg has now completed 12 seasons calling Nebraska football and baseball games, far longer than he served at K-State. It's hard to imagine. And with Nebraska now in the Big Ten, my path doesn't cross very often with my old friend. So now is the perfect time to call Greg Sharp in Lincoln, Nebraska. Hello. Hey, Greg, how are you? Fitz, I'm great. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear from you, man. I love your voice. Your voice brings back many good sports memories, brother. Man. That was a magical time for K-State was a, those night, late 1990s teams. Those were a blast, and yet it, it's one of the most heartbreaking moments of my life was the 1998 Big 12 championship game still something I wake up with cold sweats. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? I just did this with Michael, and uh, his thoughts on it were really fascinating. I, you know, he just he can't wrap his mind around still to this day how they lost that game. I have a hard time watching it. A couple times I've tried to pop a tape in and watch it, and I just it's just it brings up it brings up too much pain uh, to to see the end of that thing and know how close K State was to not only winning the game but but putting themselves in a national title game. And 
you just don't know if you get that close again. It's it's so hard to get to that level. Yeah, it's hard for almost anyone, not everyone. I mean, there's those schools now that are in that club, but um, for Kansas State, wow, you got to hit the the right combination, not have the right injury because I think the 2003 team was. Also very, very good, but they had injuries during the season that eliminated them from any chance of that. So it just everything's got to fall in place, and it did until it didn't for Kansas State in 98. I remember when, when, when the UCLA score got flashed up in the stadium in St. Louis and how everybody was going nuts, and, and we were too. Stan and I were high-fiving each other in the booth, and at that point we felt like K-State was in control of the game, and you just didn't see a Bill Snyder team not finishing the deal. That team particular that had yeah. such the magical run at the end of the year. And, you know, everybody talks about the Nebraska win, and it was huge because it had been 30 years. But uh, to me, maybe the most impressive win of the season was the going to Columbia. And K-State was so beat up and banged up yeah. in that game. Guys were uh, limping around, and they were able to beat a pretty good Missouri team on their field to finish off the undefeated regular season. It was those are just a, a special couple of weeks that ended ended with a sour, sour taste. Yeah, I'd forgotten. I talked to Gabe Diarmond, and he pointed out that the four losses Missouri suffered that season, the teams were all ranked in the top seven at some point, and Missouri led at halftime in every game. That, that was a pretty good Missouri team. They were really good. Yeah. Absolutely. They were really good. And, and and they were every bit as good as the Purdue team that K-State faced in the Alamo Bowl. Different makeup, obviously. They didn't have a Drew Brees, but they were they were certainly more stout defensively and uh, physical. Just Missouri football has always been so physical. So that that was an unbelievable win. And, and you, just, you were hoping at that point. I remember getting on the plane coming back and watch, seeing some of the faces and the pain on some of the guys faces that you were going, oh, I hope there's enough left in the chamber for them to get through St. Louis and get through A&M. Yeah, well, I fielded a question once on our overtime podcast, if you could have a time machine and go back and change one thing. And after thinking about all the world events I might change, I decided I'd go to the sideline <laughs> <laughs> that day in St. Louis and whisper to Michael, you're going to fumble. Don't fumble. Mm-hmm. Do not fumble. So, I mean, that was like uh, someone flipped a switch on that game and that ball slid down his leg. Fitz, I still have, I still can, can visually picture, I think it was first and goal at the two and, and Michael turned and I believe it was Eric Hicks and they collided in the backfield. And there was a hole off the left side of he would have been able to walk in for a touchdown that would have sealed the deal. And instead it was like a loss of a yard and a half. And now it's now second and goal in case it ends up coming to settle for three there late. But yeah, just there's images of that. And I, I have an image of, uh, getting on one of the buses and looking over to another bus, and Mike Stoops has got his head in his hands, and he's—you can tell—he's almost sobbing. He was so upset uh, with that. And then remember the craziness of of the next few days with Stoops getting hired at Oklahoma and raiding the K State staff. And man, emotions were just so raw for the next week to ten days. I know it was crazy, crazy time. And uh, what was amazing is. A lot of people felt like uh, the Oklahoma raid on the staff finished off Bill's program, and it didn't. They they went on and won 11 games for a handful more seasons, and the exception being 2001, and kept chugging along until they won that Big 12 title in 03. It, it was an impressive time of K-State football, but if you look at the resume, it was an impressive time for any football program, no matter what the name is in front of the records. 
Um, it was an incredible six out of seven seasons winning 11 games. I don't know if you can ever get a program like Kansas State back to that, but uh, I sure hope that Chris Kleiman can try awfully hard. Here's a good thing for, for K-State fans to debate, and I've been asked this, and, and I didn't have a great answer. Which was Bill Snyder part one or Bill Snyder part two, the more remarkable story. And, and there's a pretty good debate in that because I, I would lean toward one because of the shape of the program in the late eighties and, and what he inherited there and have to build it up to what he did. But the, the second resurrection was pretty good too. <laughs> the ability to build it back up and, and win a conference title. And uh, that Colin Klein team was so good. And, and it just tells you the magic of Bill Snyder. You look at some of those things, the, the, the jaw-dropping record against KU is, is so impressive what he did in the quarter century against the Jayhawks. But that's a good debate to have. Which, which, Bill, which Bill Snyder, one or two, was, was the, yeah. the, the bigger story. I think for anyone that is going to answer that, you have to understand the proper context of the late 80s, what those teams are like. Uh, it's, it's hard to fathom just through description, how bad K-State football was in that period. People people don't believe you. Yeah, it's comical. I, I tell people, you know, when KU is really bad, I'll, I'll remind them that uh, this KU team would probably beaten 1988 K-State by two touchdowns. You know, it, yeah. it was that yeah. bad. They couldn't beat one double A teams at the time. It was just dreadful. And I, I would lean towards part one. But, you know, in talking to Mike, uh, I, I would like to find another football coach, an offensive-minded football coach, that one running a spread offense, which is what he did when he first arrived with Chad May. It was a spread. Um, it didn't we didn't call it that, but that five wides and throwing it all over the place in Lincoln, Nebraska, and then switch to that quarterback run game wildcat offense he designed for Mike, and then come back after that three-year retirement and go to a traditional power eye, run-the-clock, boring type of football. He won significantly with three different styles of offense, and it was his offense they were running. He just evolved with the times, and that shows the brilliance of, of coach, and I think his that second era ran on, he, he might have got a little stuck in a rut and didn't evolve in some of the ways he needed to, but just just a mastermind at offensive football. No doubt. You know, when people talk about maybe the, 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 the turning point games, you, you alluded to it. To me, that 91 game in Lincoln with Paul Watson, J.J. Smith, they were, they were carving out Nebraska's defense. They, the, the Cats lost the game. But that was a point where you're like, wait a minute, this, this shouldn't be happening. We we might have something here. I think that, even though it was a loss for Coach Snyder, I think even most Wildcat fans were like, wait a minute, this 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 thing could work yeah. with this guy. And you know, then the '92 season was a, a, a step back that that team didn't didn't progress. They went the other way, and then they popped through in '93 and got the bull bid and won that game against Wyoming in the Copper Bowl. But that 91 game in Lincoln, even though it was a loss, I think was a marker in the Bill Snyder era that, wait a minute, this guy's, this guy's on to something. He, he kind of knows what he's doing. Yep, indeed. It was a, a brilliant time to witness in person. And uh, so many of my memories, as I mentioned, are tied to your calls. I had reason to go back a couple days ago or a couple weeks ago and find a return from David Allen and your call is just amazing. I think you might have run out of breath because you said, he's going to do it 
again, it was like he, it was just an incredible call. It's just kind of spine tingling to listen to uh, how you delivered it. But man, in all that shuffle and all the great players, we forget about a guy like David Allen that provided highlight after highlight, maybe the greatest punt returner in uh, college football history. Fantastic. And the, the again comment was because the week before, K-State had pulled one out at Ames. Remember, they got way behind in the mm-hmm. first half. And David Allen had a big kick return in that game that flipped the momentum. And so back-to-back weeks, he had big returns for scores. And, you know, you, I remember the Texas coaching staff and Matt Brown giving the question after the game, why, why did you kick it to him? He, that's the kind of thing that K-State lives on. And Matt got buried by their local media for the decision to go ahead and kick the ball to David Allen. And that flipped that game. And what a huge win for K-State at the time. That weekend was memorable for me because that's where I first met Brett Musburger. Um, Texas Sports Information Office would throw a little Friday night mixer for media, out-of-town media, and it was a place, I think it was called the Iron Cactus, down there on 6th Street in Austin. And, and Stan and I went, and Brent Musburger was there because he was calling the game the next day for ABC. And I had a chance to sit down and talk to Brent. We talked for over an hour, had a great conversation. And he was like, well, what happened last week? What, why did they struggle so much at Iowa State? And I'm like, well, there's one of those games where they weren't quite ready to go and give the Cyclones some credit. But in the end, K-State found a way to win, and David Allen made a big play. And then the next day, David Allen has that huge return against the Longhorns. So that was a memorable trip for me because I got to meet Brent for the first time. Now, that was in his heyday. That was when he was really, really uh, a special voice to have calling your college football game. Eventually, I, I don't mean to be cruel, but I think he became a shtick of himself at towards the end. But, uh, man, he he was right in his groove back then. That was That was a fun time of college football, not just because Kansas State – was good. Oh hell, probably because Kansas State was good. But it was. Uh, I feel like teams were better as a whole. Teams were better back then. We just talked about the Missouri team in '98 that just gets forgotten, and I, I think they would have competed for a lot of Big Twelve titles in the current situation of the Big Twelve. No, no doubt. I mean, yeah, and plus we were all getting used to the new league at that point. That so there were new experiences. It was new going to Austin. It was new going to College Station to play A and M. It was new going out to Lubbock and seeing Texas Tech and Spike Dykes and uh, that whole crew. So that that was a fun era with the transition to the Big Twelve Conference. And but yeah, the whole thing was K State was good. And you and I had this conversation back in those days too. We we would always make fun of of the Nebraska programs about like, how they ever, ever talk about football, 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 football. Well, then we got it because when K-State got good, that's what consumes your mind all year round. It's the season, and then it's the recruiting part of it. Then it's spring ball, and then your anticipation for another year. We, we understood it once K-State got to that level where they were the creme to the creme of college football. It made sense why football consumed your mind 12 months of the year. Yep, sure did. Uh, spring football never caught on uh, in Manhattan like it has in Nebraska. How strange is that to have that kind of fervor around spring football? That, to me, means uh, it is so entrenched in your culture, college football, that uh, they just can't wait and they have to have a little dose of it in spring. That's got to be kind of wild to be around. Two things about it. One is it's the obvious. There's not a Nebraska state, so everybody in the state our Husker football fans, that that's probably the biggest factor. But number two is is the lack of success by Nebraska in, in the sport of basketball down through the years. The only 
Power Five school in the country that's never won an NCAA tournament game. They've only been in the NCAA tournament once in the last uh, two decades. So I think that just drums up the, the the mind to get talking football again and again and again. So those two things, I think, is why it's on another level here at Nebraska with a near sellout, either sellout or near sellout crowds for the spring game. So th- those are the two biggest reasons, the lack of success on the hardwood, and then there's not another Division One program in the state to divide people's attention. Yeah, unfortunately, Kansas, I think, does have another Division One football program. I can't recall who it is, but it seems like it's out there. Uh, 2008, you end up getting the job at Nebraska uh, for a guy that was so, in, you know, woven into the fabric of K-State football history, a K-Stater yourself. That had to be a little surreal to end up as the voice of the Huskers. Take me back to it that was, time. It, yeah, it was odd. And taking over for a guy you knew pretty well, Jim Rose. Yeah. was and doing the play-by-play for Nebraska at the time. So the, the K-State thing for me ends in the spring of 2002, and, and I'm just doing a, a daily talk show. And then a K-Stater by the name of Mark Bain, who was a guy who really helped me get going at KSDB at K-State, he was an assistant athletic director in Nebraska, and they were putting together in 2004 a, a third-tier basketball television package with Fox Sports Midwest. And one day my phone rang and he called today. I know you've done television. I know you're certainly good at play-by-play. We're going to do a 10-game schedule, eight men, two women's games. Would you have an interest in coming up and doing those games? And I'm like, heck yeah, I sure would. And uh, so started doing that for Nebraska in 2004. And then it, it morphed into uh, back to the days, and uh, folks will remember these days, of pay-per-view broadcasts for college football because uh-huh. not every week were you on. And Nebraska would do a couple of pay-per-view football games in the fall, and Fox Sports was their television partner for that. So I ended up doing a couple pay-per-view games, which got my, my foot in the door there. And, and Nebraska certainly was kind of a, a second team for me all along. My mom was a graduate of, of Nebraska. And and her brother was pretty big financial backer of the program for all the years. We'd have Thanksgiving and Christmas gatherings, and he'd always be bragging about the Cornhuskers to me. So Mark Bain was really the one, and a K Stater uh, right there. And then the general manager of the of the uh, property that ran the broadcast was a guy by the name of David Whitty, who was also a K State graduate. So I had two K Staters that helped kind of lock me into that. And when Jim Rose stepped away from the job. Uh, their first call was to me, and it didn't take me long to say, absolutely, I'd be interested in that. Yeah, that's big time. I mean, I remember when I was a little kid, uh, my father was friends with another State Farm person uh, up in Lincoln. So in the bad, bad years of K-State football, we would always travel to Lincoln, and they'd have tickets for us, and we'd go to the game. And, I, you know, I don't remember much of the games because I was so small, but it uh, I remember – how the town was just electric on game day. I mean, we'd pull into a neighborhood to go to their house and you could just feel like the town was vibrating because it was a college football game day in the 1970s in Lincoln, Nebraska. And it, it, that's when I first understood how special college football would could be. As someone who was growing up a K-State fan and eventually went to Kansas State, I really didn't experience any of that until maybe 82 when they snuck into the Independence Bowl. But 
game day in Lincoln's just got to be amazing to be around. Well, if, 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 if people haven't been here, it, it, the, the stadium is basically an extension of downtown. So you've got the downtown area, then the campus is hooked to it with the stadium. There's not much mass parking around the stadium like there is at Bill Snyder Family Stadium, which I love the parking lots there and the tailgating scene there. So downtown turns into kind of a big tailgate. You're walking up and down sidewalks, and people are standing out in front of pubs with beers in their hands and getting ready to walk to the stadium. So it's just one big melting pot of people. Either they're going to the games or they're just there doing their daily job. So it's an interesting setup. I'm not sure I've really been anywhere else where – the stadium is that close to a downtown region. I, I'm kind of going through my mind places I've been. I don't think that really is the case. So it's an unusual setup, and that makes it that even makes the feel like a big like you say. You're pulling into town. You're like, holy cow! I'm eight blocks away from the stadium. All I see are people around here because they're all trying to find places to park in neighborhoods or small parking lots from a church here. Maybe it's a business over here. So that just kind of spreads everybody out. It's just a different feel than what you get in Manhattan. And I love the tailgating. In fact, I was down there in October for the TCU game and had a great time doing some tailgating before K-State game. But it's just a completely different setup with the way the stadium kind of butts up against downtown. You talk about controversies in Manhattan. They're looking at the new indoor practice facility and outdoor practice fields being in what is now that east parking lot and eating up some of those spaces and you thought someone had chopped off someone's arm because it is such a special thing to have all that parking and it's hard to explain to k-staters even if it eats up these spots you still have one of the best tailgating places in in all of uh, the united states because most football stadiums are on campus yours is downtown and attached to campus but they're in more crowded areas in k-state strangely enough did it right by building it out on the fringe of of the campus when you could have plenty of parking uh so it's it's been kind of a funny controversy (laughs) it's funny because that's exactly where i was when i came down for the tcu game i was in that east parking lot and we were talking about that guys were like yeah in a year or two we're not going to have this spot anymore we're going to get relocated somewhere else and you know i think most people had the attitude you did like yeah I'm not going to love it, but I get it. I understand it. And for us to stay at, toward the top of the heap, we got to keep doing these type of things. And so I think most fans get it. They understand why why it has to happen. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of the pushback is the aesthetics of it, too. We'll, we'll see how it plays out. Now everything's kind of – I mean, although they're still building, it now has an opportunity to kind of pause and talk about things a little bit more because uh, they need to get started on that pretty soon. Hey, it's Fitz. Let's hit the pause button right here and take a little break. What if I told you imaginary friends are real? This is just so exciting. This Friday, get ready for the movie event with the greatest cast you've ever imagined. Showtime. Ryan Reynolds, John Krasinski, Kaylee Fleming, Fiona Shaw, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, Louis Gossett Jr., Matt Damon, Emily Blunt, George Clooney, Maya Rudolph, Bradley Cooper, Sebastian Maniscalco, John Stewart, Sam Rockwell, Aquafina, Keegan-Michael Key, and Steve Carell. I need to throw up or I need a snack. It's one of the two. Gross. If. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Written and directed by John Krasinski. I want to hop back to something you mentioned, you know, being in the early Big 12 when the circuit was all new and it was kind of fun and fresh and, uh, you know, and eventually you kind of settle in and, you know, 
everything you're about to do, you know, even for the media, you, you're going to Lubbock. This is where generally you stay if they've got a room and this is how you get to the game. And it just kind of settles into a routine. And uh, it had to be odd to start all over uh, at Nebraska and then end up in the Big Ten on top of that and start a whole new cycle of really prominent stops in college football. It had to be almost refreshing to you. It was it was kind of cool, Fitz, to be honest with you. Yeah. Just going different places and seeing different atmospheres. And you know, you, you, growing up as a college football fan, you hear about the big house. You hear about the horseshoe, which doesn't look like a horseshoe anymore because they've been closed the end zone and took away a little bit of the the beauty of of Ohio Stadium. But yeah, it's been fun to go to those different places and see things. It's it, it has been really interesting to do. And the Big Ten is such an interesting mix because you have some campuses that are in big-time cities. Northwestern's on the north side of Chicago. Minnesota's right across the highway from downtown Minneapolis. So you go to those places and you're in major, you feel like you're almost on a pro circuit. And then you go to the more traditional collegiate towns like Indiana or Michigan State or Iowa or Illinois, where those are more college-type towns that have the feel of a, a Manhattan or a Stillwater or an Ames. So it's an interesting blend and an interesting mix, but I'd be lying if I said it, it hasn't been a blast to go and, and, and go to Michigan and go to Ohio State and go to Penn State and do the games and call games. So it, that's, been a real, that's been a real fun thing for me. Give me some of your favorites and why they're your favorites in the Big Ten circuit. As far as stadium, town, which, yeah, what's my whole, criteria the here? The whole experience that you go through in uh, game day and calling a game. Yeah, um, love Ohio State. That's a great atmosphere and dot in the eye with the tuba player. That's a pretty cool place. I would put Ohio State right there for me along with Texas A&M and the great atmosphere for the Aggies for their football. Those are probably my two favorite stops that I've done down through the years. Michigan is overrated in my eyes. Yeah, it's a big stadium. It's a big bowl, but it doesn't seem to have a ton of atmosphere. I don't think it's overly loud. Uh, Penn State Stadium looks like a big erector set, but my goodness, is it, it's huge, though. My gosh, you walk in there like, oh, my God, 107,000 seats. You feel like, and they do a great job. They're a lot like K-State to me in the fact that they get their students really involved, and they get it going and cranked up pretty good. So that's a tough place to play. Um Iowa's, Iowa's a good spot for a football game. And I know K-State went there in 1988. I was spotting and doing the stats for Mitch Holtus at that time when, when K-State went up there and there was an offensive coordinator on the other side of the field that ended up coming to K-State to make a difference. But Iowa's a really cool tailgate atmosphere, fun place to go. Um, so those are probably my favorites. Uh, Camp Randall for Wisconsin. Man, there are some nasty fans to k-staters they would remind you i think of going to columbia really where you just how nasty the students can be and how the fraternity rows it's right next to the football stadium and so they're all out there with their kegs and they're throwing stuff at you as you walk in and they're yelling at fans when they're walking into the stadium so it's it's it is a really foul place to go they get going get that thing cranked up pretty good but they would remind K-Staters, I think, of going to Columbia or going to Boulder. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of funny with the whole realignment of 
of the Big 12. We lost both of those venues. Um, we lost three venues you mentioned on top of Nebraska. We lose the really right. cool venue at A&M and the really gracious and kind fans, um, even though you started to figure out they're a little odd. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> But you, you lose Missouri and Colorado, which were the two uh, most hostile places to visit, and not in a good football, you know, loud football sense. They were just mean, you know, throwing rocks at you in Columbia and and you'd have beer bottles and yeah, people just stoned out of their mind yelling at you from their houses in Colorado. I'm like, what is going on here? It's you're supposed to be hugging people. It's it's funny <laughs> to hear you say that about Michigan because that sounds exactly like Texas. It should be really intimidating. It should be really awesome and you you get in there and you're like, yeah, this isn't that this isn't that much. I mean, there's a lot of people here, but you're just not intimidated by the environment at all. It's a pretty good comparison, and there's a lot of that. Michigan kind of has a little bit of a snooty feel about it toward everybody else. And the Buckeyes do, too. They've got a lot of swagger, but they certainly kind of earned that with what they've been like the last 20, 25 years. Heck, their whole history of their football program, they've kind of earned that a little bit. But, yeah, there's certainly – you can – do some parallels. You can draw this line to that school and this school to that school and go, yeah, that's kind of who that is in this conference. Yeah, I, I would probably compare. I think the fan bases for Ohio State and Nebraska probably has some comparisons. It's a um, not a snooty crowd at all in terms of, you know, wealth and attitude and, and you know, it, nothing seems like it just belongs to them. It just it's kind of been winning's a tradition, not a right, um, if that makes sense. And here's the other connection between the two is, is Ohio stadium was built in the early 1920s. And when Nebraska built Memorial stadium in the mid twenties, they, there are a lot of architectural similarities between the two stadiums with some of the arched features in the stadium. So you walk around the two stadiums, you're like, okay, I see that in Lincoln. I see that in Columbus. So there, there's a, even a tie that goes between the two that, that dates to their the building of their stadiums. That's very interesting. That's, the uh, first time I went to Morgantown, which is a good environment, it's a fun place to visit, and everyone talked about how hostile their fans were, and I'm like, well, you know, I've been to Columbia, Missouri, and it turned out West, West Virginia fans were so damn happy to be in a major conference at that point, they would, they'd hug you, but uh, I walked in the stadium, and I'm like, why does this feel familiar, and it turns out it was built off the same architectural plans as the stadium at Iowa State. Now they've kind of gone in different directions, you know, with additions. But it was, it was interesting. It felt so familiar, and it's because it was just like Jack Trice. It was, you know, the yeah. the bones of it were just like that. How long did it take you really to settle in and and feel like, uh, as a K Stater, this is home. This is where I'm at. This is uh, I'm part of of this incredible tradition now. What helped me really integrate up here was. I arrived at the same time as a new football staff. So Polini gets hired just a couple of months before I get hired full-time up here. So he's fairly new. Their staff is new. And here I am. And so they're doing going through the same life changes that I was as a staff. They're all trying to find homes. They're trying to get their families moved, all those type of things. So there was a lot. That really made it pretty easy. And I, I – it may not look like it when I would interview Bo for television or whatever. We got along really well. I missed that guy. That guy was a great competitor and uh, did a heck of a job here. Was underappreciated for what he did at Nebraska, but that that helped. Um, but it was a you know even to this day, every now and then, Fitz, I'll hear, "Oh, you're just the K State guy." I hear that from time to time from people. So it it has taken a while to get transitioned into that, and 
I knew it would. Um, you, you just don't jump for that. And remember, I, I had a conversation about this with Bob Barry, who, who did this at Oklahoma. He hopped between Oklahoma and Oklahoma State, went from Oklahoma to Oklahoma State, then back to Oklahoma in his illustrious career. Uh, down in, so he, I had some conversations with him about that. But it did take a little while, but it certainly helped kind of jumping on board at the same time as a new staff. I'm not sure you could do that in today's social media environment. I think the pressure would be so much if someone tried to jump between rivals back and forth. I don't think it could be accomplished. Yeah, I don't either. And I'll, I'll tell you also, too, Fitz, what, what helped was, was the split in conferences. When, when Nebraska left and went to the Big Ten, that, that eased a lot of that, I think. It was tough. It was hard for me to do Nebraska K-State football games because of my such deep admiration for Coach Snyder. It was hard for me to recall those couple of games between Nebraska and K-State. So it was really, in a way, kind of a blessing for me that Nebraska left and went to a different league. It eased a lot of those tensions for me. Coach Pelini was not a big Bill Snyder fan, if I recall. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think they were. I think they got along better than you would think after the initial dust up back in '03 when Bo was the defensive coordinator for Frank Solich. But you know, Bill and Tom Osborne are so tight. They talk probably once a week on the phone. And usually, when I see Coach Osborne, I'll go, "Hey, have you talked to Coach Snyder?" And yeah, yeah, he said to tell you hi. I told him tell him hi. um, that's been one of the great things for me is getting a chance to be around Coach Osborne. What, what a tremendous human being and man, and, and I I just have so much admiration for what he did uh, here. And you know, he and I have talked a lot about that transition from the Big Eight to the Big Twelve. He was not happy with some of the decisions that were made and some of the some of the tips of the cap to Texas uh, during all that. And you remember the whole Prop Forty Eight thing and getting rid of those Prop Forty Eight guys. K State was using, utilizing that to a a certain degree as well. So it, that's been one of the great things for me is getting a chance to, to know Coach Osborne. I attend the same church as him, see him a lot of times on Sundays, not right now during the quarantine, but certainly when we're uh, not in quarantine, I do bump into him quite a bit. These two schools are blessed to have men like that as their icons. Every man has his faults, but they sit atop things, and uh, you can be so proud that those are you know at the fabric of your university's football program. Pretty good moral compasses, aren't they? I mean, doing things the right way, teaching the right values, understanding what's important, and, and come on, Coach Snyder insists on it being called Bill Snyder Family Stadium. I mean, how many guys want to do that? I mean, that's just that just shows you what what he was, and, and you and I both know that uh, about him and Tom Osborne's cut out of the same cloth. Uh, two guys that grew up in small towns and kind of worked their way through it, knew nothing nothing other than just a strong work ethic to get their jobs done. These are odd times for Nebraska football, aren't they? They they just can't quite get over the hump. I feel like they've got the right coach right now. They've they've messed around with that and run off good coaches from Solich and Pelini and you know, kind of put themselves in peril that I don't think was necessary, but I think they finally got the right guy. It's just it's hard, even for Nebraska, to get it going again. Once you're kind of dead in the water, you got to build momentum. Stan Weber and I have talked about this so much that it's hard to win because everybody's got big budgets now. A lot of the advantages that Nebraska enjoyed in the 70s and 80s of being 
one of the few programs that would get on TV most of the time, one of the few programs that would have the size of a stadium that could really add to their budget. Now everybody's got all this TV money. So everybody's got that. Everybody's got good facilities. It's it's really difficult, and the margin between winning and losing is so narrow now compared to what it was in the 70s and the 80s where there were a few elite programs and everybody else was trying to just fight their way to 500 and get a Liberty Bowl bid or something like that at the end of the season. Now it's hard. You win a game and you got to feel good. And I remember leaving um, the Dev Nelson press box after a win over Missouri and Stan and I are walking down towards the veneer complex. We're going to go in and say hi to some of the coaches. And Stan's like, look at these people. We just beat Missouri. He goes, and everybody's acting like it's no big deal. He goes, we, we've gotten spoiled to that point. And I hope fans realize winning week, week in and week out is a hard thing to do. And uh, But you're, you know, your, your point about Nebraska, they enjoyed that stability from 1962 with when Devaney got hired to really the end of the Osborne era. And you, they, they hoped it would continue with Frank Solich. It did start to slip under coach Solich and then they lost their way. They kind of went away from what they were. And when you keep firing coaches who win nine games, it's hard to, to build that back up. And that's why I'm so happy for K-State that they found a guy, a winner in Chris Kleiman, who uh, I know I, I argue with some of my K-State buddies when he got hired, they thought, God, oh, we're settling for a lesser than a big time coach. And I'm like, no, you've got a winner. You've got a guy who knows how to win. You have a guy who knows how to build something and to an, it's going to work out beautifully. And I, I'm just so happy that he's K-State's head football coach. Winning eight games in your first season is is tough to do. Uh, you know, to pick up basically the same roster from a legend that won five games before and and win eight is is pretty darn impressive. Uh, I, I'm curious to see what this whole coronavirus thing does to programs like his and certainly any program like Baylor that is starting off with a new coach with no spring football or limited limited opportunities to work out. Um, this really throws a curveball, even if we're able to kick off in September, which is in doubt, but I have a feeling there will be a full college football season in some form, maybe without fans, maybe a later start. I think they'll get it in because it's so necessary to budgets, to be blunt. If we can get this thing under control in any way, I don't know how athletic departments function without a football season, but uh, it's, it's going to be incredible. What we saw Cincinnati drop their men's soccer program earlier this week. I, I think it could be it could be really bad for a lot of the the, the uh, Olympic sports if if you can't get a football season in in the upcoming year. I think they'll do everything they can to get it done. But true, that's a great point. Anybody who's changed coaches or maybe even changed coordinators yeah. and you didn't get spring practice, that's going to be hard then to get your stuff installed and ready for week one and week two, whenever week one and week two will be. But, yeah, there will be advantages for programs that are established. I think if we get a season underway at some point in time later this fall or even in the next spring, it seems like that's getting floated out there an awful lot. My good friend Marcus Watts played for Scott Frost when he was here as a grad assistant, and, man, he loves the dude, just loves him. What are your thoughts on Coach Frost and and what kind of impact he's going to have in Lincoln over the long run? Yeah, he's a really bright guy. Um, he, he's a deep thinker, you can tell. Um, and he's got that edge to him that I think a lot of the great coaches have. Now, having said that, it's not been a it's not been a good launch for him here in in Lincoln. He's I mean, the record has not been anywhere close to what people thought he would have in years one and two. So this will be a big year. And 
And Nebraska fits into that category of really needing some spring practice. They didn't get to a bowl game, so they didn't have those bowl workouts back in December that a lot of programs did. Uh, now, having said that, they've recruited at a very high level. It looks like the staff is pretty good at that. Uh, they took over a tough situation. The Mike Riley era, in a lot of ways, would, would mirror kind of the Ron Prince era at K State. Of just you, you saw the day-to-day workings and going, this, this isn't gonna work. And when you have to change a couple of coaches in a short amount of time, you end up losing some recruiting classes. And I think that's what's hurting Nebraska the most is that they've got two classes of their five that are probably almost net zeros because of, of the turnover of coaches. And so they've got to battle through that. My guess is Nebraska is still probably a year or so away from getting back to where they can really compete for a conference title again. And Husker fans, like any fans, aren't very patient, but they're going to have to be. It's going to take a while to kind of overcome a mistake hire, which is what Mike Rowley really ended up being. It was such a strange hire. It didn't make any sense to – Anyone, and yet it took place. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but Nebraska fans got to be a little bit bitter over that decision to bring in this guy who just didn't fit in any way. And and it showed to be true. It just didn't work at all. Nice man, but it's 62 years old and had had very little success the last five or six years that he was in Corvallis at Oregon State. It just, you're right, it made no sense. I remember I curled up in a ball when I heard it. I'm like, what? That what? Are you kidding me? That's where we're going with this. And just a really poor hire by an athletic director that just was in over his head in Sean Eichhorst and made made several major mistakes at Nebraska. One of the things that, that Sean Eichhorst implemented Fitz was telling all of his head coaches, you're no longer recruiting the junior college ranks. Well, <laughs> certainly it affects football, but it also, I mean, men's basketball, you dip into the junior college ranks quite a bit. College baseball, a lot of programs live off junior college recruiting, getting kids after one year who didn't go to JUCO because they didn't have grades. They went to junior college because they didn't like the offers they were getting out of out of high school. So there's some, some really poor upper-level decisions made, and the, the headliner of that is the hiring of Mike Riley at just a, the wrong time of his career to try to get a program going. Man, I can understand that line of thinking maybe in the 80s and 90s. Remember the controversy Bill Snyder would get for signing yep. college players? I mean, it was such yep. a stigma around it. I can get it back then, but in the 2000s? That's craziness. That doesn't make any sense. Pretty, pretty odd. I, I also call baseball. And so last spring, Nebraska was in the, the Oklahoma State Regional with the Cowboys. And Oklahoma State, what a great program they've had, oh, for decades in college baseball. I added up on their 35-man roster, they had 17 junior college players. So, so then you're trying to compete against guys who are a little bit older who are good players, and you, you're handicapped, and you can only go get high school kids in your program. It's it's a hard thing to, to win at. You mentioned that it's going to take Frost another year or so to get it really going. What are your prospects for football? Uh, let's let's set this aside. What's going on in society right now? Let's say they go in September. What do you what do you feel like the Huskers will accomplish in 2020? I think the, I think I saw the Vegas over under for Nebraska set at six and a half. I think that's probably reasonable for this team. They've got a a back stretch of the schedule that is just murderous. Their last five games are Ohio State, Penn State, Wisconsin, Iowa, and Minnesota, and all those teams won at least nine or more games. So that's the back five. So they're going to have to get to be bowl eligible by the end of October if they want to get in postseason play. I think Nebraska will be better. 
in, in 2020 than they were in 2019. But, boy, that back five is going to be really, really challenging to try to find any wins. And of those five, three of them are on the road. Ohio State, Wisconsin, and Iowa are on the road. So it's it'll be a challenge. Um, but I do think the team is making progress. I think they're going to be better. And who knows, sometimes teams don't look as daunting when you get up to face them in November that they do here in April. Yeah, it's uh, that end of the schedule is ridiculous. It's funny when, yeah. you, when you get a conference uh, with kind of the scheduling that you have to do with a 14-team conference, which is a horrible number to try to schedule with, how it can just one year just absolutely pile on you, and the next year it's not even close to that. It does go in cycles, and I agree with you on the size of the league. The, the addition of the Big Ten of Maryland and Rutgers made no sense to me at all. Um, I, I get it that you're thinking you're adding big TV markets, but nobody in the New York TV market cares about Rutgers. That they they are a they're a blip on the radar is all they are. It's just these conference commissioners are you know have really made some, in my opinion, some poor decisions down through the years. I mean, having Maryland and Rutgers in the same league as Nebraska doesn't make sense. Having West Virginia in the same league as Texas Tech doesn't make much sense to me. I, I kind of hope we have a reshuffle of the deck fits here in the next decade where we kind of put some sanity back into this thing and get everybody a little bit more regionalized. I, I would agree with that. In fact, um, you know, if you're a Big 12, and you're looking to add some teams, you're probably looking west, which only you know makes this problem worse with West Virginia, which really does fit into the Big 12 in every way except maybe the most important, where they're located. Where they are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, yeah. they really have kind of slid into this conference in terms of their fan base just feels like they belong. When they come to Kansas City for Big 12 basketball tournament, and they just they feel like Big Big eight fans. I mean, they just really do kind of fit right in and kind of the the stigma that you have in your brain of what West Virginia is going to be like isn't at all what Morgantown feels like when you go there on game day. It's a it's a beautiful mountain environment. Uh, not quite Boulder, which is just picturesque, but it's awfully fun to go to. And But you're right. These conferences have gotten so spread out. And I understand grabbing Maryland uh, if you're expanding. Rutgers is – just I still don't understand it. It wasn't like Rutgers was, uh, you know, a dominant athletic program that you just wanted, even though, you know, they didn't have the big headlines. It's Rutgers. It's a New Jersey program that, you know, people don't realize it's the state university of New Jersey and nobody really cares about Rutgers. People don't show up and, you know, flock to football and basketball games. You could go to a sports bar in New York City on a college football Saturday. I bet you'd have a hard time finding a Rutgers game on a TV. (laughs) Unless they're playing Michigan or Ohio State with all the Michigan and Ohio State fans during there watching the game. Yeah, I I would say that the Rutgers is the big winner of conference realignment. To go from where they were to the Big Ten, that's kind of winning a – a, a crown lottery jewel. ticket. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. So how are you handling all this situation right now? I know it kind of hits in a good time for you, although spring football got put on the shelf. But, um, you know, it, it's got to be much more manageable for folks like us than maybe others. I'm like everybody. I'm bored. I, you know, I miss sports. I miss watching the Masters over the weekend. I'm missing Major League Baseball and having Royals games on every night and just kind of wondering – you kind of, I think we're all like, when can I get back to seeing that? When can we get back to enjoying this or that again? 
And nobody has the answers to that. And that's a really unsettling type of thing. We will. I think we all know we will get back to it. It's just a matter of when. So I, I'm like everybody else. I, I'm bored. I'm ready to start watching some Major League Baseball and the PGA on the weekends. And uh, I'm going to be fired up to watch the NFL draft. I know that. It's going to be an actual event that matters. And so uh, I can't wait for those three days to get here. It's crazy. Brilliant decision by the NFL to go ahead and hold their draft, even if it's a socially distant version of it. I think it's uh, it's going to get ratings that are just astronomical. People that wouldn't typically ever think about watching the NFL draft, even though they might be football fans, will be locked in on it because it's all we got. It's it. It's just incredible. Absolutely. Great decision by them. And they can do a draft virtual. They can all zoom in and do that and pull that off and I don't need to have big crowds in a ballroom hooting and hollering when the Jets make a bad pick. I don't need that. That's fine. I just I want to see names going up on the board and who's going to be going where. Uh, you're right. I think these TV ratings will be the best that the NFL's ever had for their draft. Well, we will push through this and persevere. And um, I, I'm very concerned about a lot of businesses, and I'm concerned about universities. If we don't get back to business with fall classes. There's going to be universities in really serious financial situations as we move forward because they're fragile anyhow. People don't realize that the universities aren't raking in the cash. It's going to be a really tenuous time for a lot of places, whether it's the private or you know government university education sectors. It's, it's scary times ahead. No doubt. With each passing day of this shutdown and quarantine, it's, it's affecting all those things you just mentioned more and more. And that's why I think at some point in time we got to get it going. We obviously got to follow the science on this as well. But yep. I'm glad I don't have to make some of those decisions because they're, they're going to be tough ones and hard ones to make. I agree with you, brother. Well, I'm glad you're doing well. I'm glad all is well up in Lincoln. And it's it's great once in a while when they'll drop in some highlights from a Nebraska game and use your play-by-play, and it brings back great memories for me. Well, I appreciate it. Certainly follow the Cats on a, on a, a Game-by-game basis, love the direction that Chris Kleiman's taken the program in. And uh, it was tough for me when when Coach Snyder decided to step aside. You knew that day was coming. Uh, And and it probably came at the right time as well. But just just thrilled that Chris Kleiman's now ahead of that program. Yeah, interesting times ahead for both of these football programs. And certainly the tradition in Nebraska is a lot longer, deeper, richer than Kansas State. But I think both fan bases yearn for those fun times to return. No doubt. It's always great to catch up. Thank you. Thank you, brother. Good to talk to you. Greg is so good at what he does, and he's part of a long and talented line of Kansas State play-by-play talent, including the Kansas City Chiefs' Mitch Holtus, before him, and Wyatt Thompson since his departure. More of my conversations are on the way, but as some areas of the country start planning on how to end much of this isolation, men over 45, book a blood test with your doctor to get your PSA scored. Maybe you will catch prostate cancer before it takes hold. Take care, everyone. I'll talk to you real soon.